A federal judge strikes down the under-21 handgun sales ban, plus Cam Edwards bearing arms on the Tennessee red flag proposal and Trump's defense of the bump stock ban. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. To keep up to date with guns in America, you will get access to lots of stories that you will not find anywhere else. And if you want to go even further, you can buy a membership to help support our reporting and get access to member-exclusive pieces of analysis and reporting uh, and this podcast. You'll get it a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show. So stay tuned. We actually have a member segment this week uh, that I think everyone should uh, tune in for and listen to. It's one of my favorite parts of the show. But my other favorite part is when I get to talk to the expert guests we have on this week, we have Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms, who is another person who produces a lot of great gun reporting and writing out there. Um, and uh, welcome back to the show. You've been on a couple of times before, Cam. We always love having you on. Well, uh, listen, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks for the invite. And uh, I'm glad to see you. And I, I will say that I also have a, uh, a guest kind of lurking around. So if you're a rooster in the background at some point over the course of the podcast, Mr. Crow is an attention hog. So uh, yeah, <laughs> he, he, you, you might hear him at some point. He's just kind of wandering around the office right now. Is he inside your office? No, no, he, he's uh, outside. But uh, my my office not um, a house is basically like a little shed, uh, so <laughs> it's separate from from the from from you know the house, and uh, it you know it's a portable shed. So he's just kind of doing circles with his hands around the portable shed, and yeah, he he knows as soon as I do an interview. It happened earlier today too. I was talking to a radio station out in Oregon, and as soon as I started talking, he decided he had to have the last word. So, just warning your <laughs> listeners and viewers. I think it adds charm to the interview. Um, <laughs> although I, I can't stand my mom's rooster uh, up on the farm in Pennsylvania. That thing. Yeah. I mean, it, that, yeah. As soon as the sun comes up there, they're making oh, noise. Oh, and all day. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't stop yeah. once the sun comes up. It's yeah, it's it's all day long. But Mr. Crow's yeah. a, Mr. Crow's a, a good rooster. He's been with us for about five years. He manages to keep the chickens safe most of the time. So, yeah, <laughs> we've got a pretty good relationship. Well, there you go. That's good. Well, hopefully we'll get his commentary. Later, but, uh, but I want to I start with um, I, what I think is the most interesting fight going on in the states right now as far as gun policy is concerned. And that's in Tennessee over this proposal from Governor Bill Lee, who's a Republican. Obviously, Republicans have uh, majorities in both houses of, of their legislature there as well. But uh, Governor Lee wants to implement he's calling it an order of protection law. Uh, most people would call this a red flag law. Uh, he's very reticent to label it that. He thinks it's a political label um, that, that he doesn't agree with. But um, can you just give us your the, the what's the latest there going on in, in the state there? He just called for a special session, right? Yeah. So we called for a special session in August, um, which I, I think is designed to give his administration and uh, some of the legislative leaders who, who backed his proposal time to do some lobbying with lawmakers, uh, because I think it's you know going to be Republicans who are most reticent to, to do this. Democrats see any opening as a good thing. Right. So even though this doesn't go nearly as far as they would like, um, it's a 
step in the right direction. So they're already going to be on board. Uh, you got to convince Republicans or at least enough Republicans to get a majority. And I know that Governor Lee, just from a political standpoint, doesn't want to see this pass uh, just because a bare minimum number of Republicans signed on. Right. He, he wants this to have true bipartisan support. Um, and so I think that's why he's kicked the special session back until August. But as far as the particulars of this proposal goes, you're right. Uh, Governor Lee has said, don't call this a red flag law. It's a temporary mental health restraining order. But it's not. Because to me, if we're talking about a mental health restraining order, we're talking about restraining an individual because of their mental health concerns, right? And this ultimately is still about taking their guns away. It's not about getting them any sort of treatment. It's not about, uh, you know, the criminal justice system stepping in. It is a gun-centric approach to dealing with supposedly dangerous individuals. Um, so I, I object to red flag laws on that basis. I think they just go in the wrong direction. But what's interesting, as you say, is that this what he's proposing really is different from virtually all of the red flag laws that are on the books. So um, no ex parte hearings, right? Uh, no ex parte hearings. Um, you if you are the subject of a petition, you get to be at every court hearing which is a good thing, right? That, that alleviates some of the due process concerns. Um, there is mental health involvement in terms of determining whether or not you're danger to, to yourself or somebody else. Um, you have the ability to uh, transfer your firearms to a third party. It doesn't have to be that the police go and confiscate your firearms. So, you know, there are some, oh, and by the way, you're also entitled to a representation. If you can't afford an attorney, um, you get access to a public defender. Uh, yeah. That's that's a good thing. And again, it's that's something that's absent from almost every red flag law in place. So I'll right. give Governor Lee credit for listening to the concerns of gun owners about due process protections. Um, I, I think that those are addressed. I still think that the underlying premise, however, takes us in the wrong direction. Yeah, so I want to get into, we'll get into some of the critiques there, that main overarching critique, but I want to get into some of these differences that are in this initial proposal, at least. Uh, now, I guess this could obviously change as they approach the actual session, which is now a couple months away. Um, but yeah, let, let's let's go over a little more detail about what how this law works compared to how basically every other red flag law works. Um, because you're right, there's so I guess initially the, the police officer is the only one who can file these requests under this law. It's my understanding. And it is. Um, the, so one of the reasons he's calling this an order of protection instead of a red flag law is that it's expanding on something that already exists in Tennessee. Right. They, they already have this process for somebody who's accused of domestic violence uh, to go through and to have their guns removed. Uh, temporarily. It's a similar idea as um, what he's proposing here. He just wants to expand it, I guess, to include these people who've been determined uh, to be a threat to themselves or others. Um, and so there there are a number of differences with this process and with most processes. Like you mentioned, most of them, it's an ex parte process. And a lot of people can really apply for one of these uh, or can petition a court. You know, a lot of states are letting teachers or mental health professionals or roommates or relatives do this in addition to police officers. So that that's one significant difference. Um, the uh, yeah, the other one, the first one is this ex parte 
uh, aspect of the process where in most states you file a petition, there's a hearing, you're not informed of the hearing. If you're the subject of the petition, you're not present at the hearing. And then a judge at that hearing decides whether or not there's enough evidence. Uh, and the, the standard is, I think it's the same level of standard in this proceeding as in most of them, which is sort of clear and convincing evidence standard, which is, uh, you know, a lower level, obviously, than a criminal standard, which is beyond a reasonable shadow of a doubt, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, the, instead of having a judge issue an order before the, the person being accused of being a threat is even aware of the proceedings, this Tennessee bill would make it so that they not only would they have to be at the the, the hearing uh, when this happens, but they would get legal representation if they can't provide their own. And they would um, have to go through a mental health screening uh, by law, right? This requirement of part of this process uh, instead of, you know, so it's based on an actual mental health professional's evaluation of the individual. Um, and so, you know, the, the, I get, I don't know, uh, from your point of view, how significant are those differences? Well, I think they are significant. Um, you know, again, when, but here's the other thing, um, mm -hmm. the, you know, these protections, right? The, these improvements over a standard red flag law are also the very things that uh, Democrats in Tennessee are already objecting to. Um, right. They said, well, you act, you have to have these ex parte hearings because what if there's an emergency? What if, what if there's, you know, a, a an imminent danger uh, and you're going to tell this dangerous person, hey, two weeks from now, show up in courts because we want to take your guns away. Uh, you know, what, what on earth could that lead to? So, yeah. you know, for for everything that Billy is trying to do to mollify gun owners and Second Amendment supporters, um, I think it's, you know, angering uh, the, the gun control activists because. They are the ones who've written these red flag laws, right? So they know what they want uh, and they know what they think works, quote unquote. Um, and you have to have it has to be baked into the cake that you have. You have to be able to go and get the guns right away. Uh, and if that means that the person isn't aware that this hearing is being held, they're not allowed to pre present a defense. Um, well, so be it right. You can come back a couple of weeks later uh, and and then they get to have their day in court. So. I, you know, that's how most red flag laws work. Um, I I like the idea, again, of providing these due process protections, but I can see this argument already being raised by Anakin Democrats that this doesn't go far enough. Let's say that there is an incident after uh, let's say that the lawmakers, you know, pass this temporary mental health restraining order um, and then somebody who was in the process of, you know, having their guns taken away goes on to commit a violent crime. Democrats are going to point to that right away and say, aha, see, look, you've got to get rid of that provision. It's too weak. Um, it, the law is basically meaningless. And I think that's that should be another concern for gun owners, Stephen, that, you know, if you put a useless law on the books, well, the people who support a stronger version of that law are then going to get to argue, hey, look, we need to remove these protections Right. We need to expand who can file for these petitions because this law isn't working the way it is. Um, if you take that first step, I think it does lead to a slippery slope in this case. And that's why, again, I mean, if you're going to be talking about ways to 
prevent these types of attacks, I think you've got to look at the individual and not just their gun ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, I would prefer that they actually take a look at actually bolstering the mental health laws and the mental health uh, provisions in Tennessee rather than trying to label a gun law, uh, however well-intentioned, a, a mental health proposal. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, um, you know, because I guess the core issue we're trying to address, right, with, with these sorts of ideas uh, is is the person who is throwing off warning signs that they're potentially going to harm themselves or others, right, you're making direct threats about it. Uh, there's a lot of warning signs that can come in into this sort of thing, but they haven't actually committed a crime yet or a serious enough crime that they um, warrant uh, felony conviction uh, or uh, or domestic violence misdemeanor or something along those lines that would permanently keep them from owning guns legally. Uh, you know, and so the solution is where, you know, how do you stop somebody like that? And that's where these red flag laws come in. And then obviously I think the, as you're talking about here, a lot of uh, gun rights advocates would say involuntary commitment is the better option. Right. That, that's that's basically what it, the, the argument. Right. I think so. I mean, and, and listen, uh, you know, the downside of that is once you have been involuntarily committed, you lose your right to keep your arms forever. Right? right. It's it's not temporary. It is a more extreme step. But if we're talking about people who are truly dangerous. Uh, either to themselves or others, there already is a process in place by which those individuals can be confined to a mental health facility mm-hmm. until they are no longer a danger to themselves or others. Um, and that seems like a more substantial approach. You know, one of the other concerns I have about this, Stephen, is that while I appreciate the fact that a public defender could be appointed, I appreciate, uh, you know, the fact that there are mental health screenings involved here. Those things come with a price. And those things come with personnel. We already have a problem finding enough public defenders uh, in many jurisdictions across this country. Cases are being dismissed because, you know, they, they don't have enough public defenders to go around. And, and so you're seeing these lengthy delays and people's you know, rights are being violated. So adding more burdens to an already burdened system concerns me. Something's going to have to give. We just saw the New York State Police uh, Union come out today and say that Governor Hochul's mandating of the use of red flag laws has left them unable to investigate a lot of serious crimes because so many resources are being devoted to going after these supposedly dangerous people and their guns. There's been a thousand percent increase uh, in the number of red flag petitions that have been filed over the past year in New York. Some of the New York State Police barracks are running out of room to hold all of the guns that have been confiscated. Uh, and the police union is now speaking up. They're not speaking out against red flag laws. I think they want more funding, right, to do, to be able to do both. Um, but th- this is having an impact. And this is what, you know, strict enforcement of a red flag policy looks like. Even if you're not a gun owner, you should be a little concerned about the impact that this is going to have on public safety. If, poli- if finite police resources uh, are being devoted to going after, you know, somebody who might be a danger to themselves or others versus somebody who's committed a, a violent felony. Um, and the same holds true with our mental health system, too. You know, Tennessee, like almost every other state, has a shortage of mental health professionals. So if we're now tasking them with doing uh, a mental health screening, not for an involuntary commitment, but to simply take somebody's guns away, again, I worry that that, at the very least, is not a good use of resources. Um, and at the worst, 
again, may allow some truly dangerous people to do terrible things because, uh, you know, we adopted the idea that, well, if we take their guns away, that solves the problem. Right. What What if the policy is coupled with some sort of mandatory, mandatory um, mental health treatment as part of the order? Would that, you know, like, I'm just trying to get to, um, you know, is there a, is there a potential proposal in this vein of temporary removal of firearms because somebody is, is a threat to themselves or others that would, would sort of actually address all of the issues that you just outlined. I mean, there, cause there's obviously are a lot of legitimate issues and this is a serious topic, right? That we're talking about somebody's rights and we're talking about the safety of, of the community around them and their own safety as well. Um, and, and so what, you know, to me, I've always looked at the critiques of red flag laws and they, they've seemed like they're addressable um, uh, because a lot of them are based on the due process concerns. Well, th- this proposal has a number of ways of trying to address those concerns, uh, but it doesn't hit sort of the overarching critique that you've outlined here of like, well, if this person is really a threat to themselves or others, why why we, why would you stop at just moving the firearms? There's obviously other ways that people can kill themselves or other people. We saw this in Texas recently, right? Somebody drove their SUV into a crowd of people and killed, killed eight. Um, is there, uh, but you know, is, is there a way to try and reform these proposals to actually f- address all of those issues? I, I don't think so. I mean, not to my mind. Um, because again, if the fundamental premise is about removing the gun and, and not, uh, dealing with the individual, um, then I think we're we're going in the wrong direction. And red flag laws, by their very nature, are are gun centric. Um, you know, again, they were written by gun control groups. They were, you know, designed by gun control groups. They're they're not meant to be uh, an all encompassing way to address dangerous people. Uh, they're a way to go after what they say are dangerous guns in the hands of people who may or may not be a danger. So I I, I don't think you can square that circle. Um, I really don't because. And I understand why, again, these red flag laws are, are somewhat popular with politicians. They are they're they're a cheap fix. Um, I'm actually very curious to see what the fiscal impact uh, will be for Governor Lee's proposal when we start to get some some actual hard numbers coming out about, you know, what's this going to cost to provide a public defender? What's it going to cost to provide mental health screening? This, I think, is a way for lawmakers to say they have done something without having to spend a lot of money. Uh, either reforming the mental health system, you know, adding uh, more public defenders to the roles, adding maybe more judges to the roles. This allows them to do something on the cheap. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think at, at the expense of our, our rights um, and again, at the expense of leaving dangerous people alone to do dangerous things. Right. I mean, I guess, um, you know, if the answer is involuntary commitment, uh, I just wonder if there isn't some way that you like is every person who's a threat to themselves or or others who has these mental health crises um, is that sort of uh, step of of, of uh, putting them in a facility the only solution right I mean um, you know removing their access to to firearms and and mandating that they get mental health treatment I don't know if that's how much different that is from involuntary commitment, I guess, in the first place. But if it's a more temporary solution, um, you know, I, with a 
a little bit of a um, reduced burden, I guess, on on trying to because uh, one of the issues with involuntary commitment is it's very difficult to actually get somebody through that process, right? That's my understanding, at least. That uh, I'm I'm not as much of an expert on involuntary commitments and how hard they are, but my understanding is they're very difficult to to actually do. Um, and so that's where, like, is there some way to do that same level of process, but it's temporary, so the deprivation of rights isn't as severe, it's coupled with the mental health treatment that you're, I think, persuasively saying is necessary in, in, if you do believe somebody is a, that much of a threat to themselves or others. Um, you know, it, like, is there some middle way there? Well, just not? <laughs> I mean, maybe another approach would be instead of trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel with a red flag law, let's just mm. reform the involuntary commitment laws. Mm. So so mm. if it's too difficult, now listen, I'm a I'm a fan of all of our civil rights, not just the right to keep and bear arms. So right. I don't want to see a situation where people can get, you know, locked up and involuntarily committed just because somebody says, oh, you know what, they said something that that disturbed me. Um what I think we actually need, and one of the reasons why I think it is so difficult for these involuntary commitments to happen again is because we haven't funded the mental health system. There are enough beds to go around. You know, you and I are in Virginia where routinely individuals who are in crisis are sitting in jail cells or they're sitting in ER rooms, uh, you know, for 24 to 48 hours with a deputy, by the way, sitting right beside them, unable to go out on patrol because there aren't enough spaces. There aren't enough beds available for these people. So, Regardless of red flag laws, that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, but I think if we looked at this as a mental health problem, which is supposedly what we're doing here, then maybe an involuntary commitment shouldn't lead to a lifetime prohibition on the right to keep and bear arms. What if an involuntary commitment led to a temporary removal of your ability to own a firearm? But again, once you are no longer a danger to yourself or others, your rights can be restored. That, to me, seems like a much better way of approaching this than trying to shoehorn a red flag law into, uh, you know, being able to uh, uh, negate the dangerousness, uh, dangerousness of somebody while still leaving them out on the street. So, yeah. I, you know, maybe we just need to look at it from a different direction. Hmm. Uh, no, that's an, that's definitely a very interesting idea. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's. Uh, there's just so much that goes into this. That's it's not an easy answer, right? There's just not going to be a super simple solution. I do uh, think that watching what's going on in Tennessee is important because it seems to be one of the first times where people have taken a policy like red flag laws and actually tried to do something to address the, the critiques, um, whether or not it succeeds, I think is a whole nother question, right? Like we're discussing here, but yeah, but Maine, usually Maine did just it push uh, the same. as well with uh, mm -hmm. their, I think they call it a yellow flag law. Um, and they actually worked with the, I think it's the uh, uh, Sportsman's Alliance of Maine. Mm -hmm. um, They're actually involved in writing that legislation. Uh, and again, there is a mental health provision both before and after, uh, you know, a, a finding of dangerousness. So, uh, but, but again, that was sort of a one-off. And this is the first time we've seen a Republican governor. Yeah. Try to take these steps. Right. It was Janet Mills uh, in Maine who, you know, helped the uh, the the yellow flag law. Um, but this is, as you say, I mean, Governor Bill Lee's a staunch conservative. He signed constitutional carry into law. So it is interesting, um, it, you know, from a political perspective to see him yeah. uh, decide to do this. And I you know, this is, I think, one of the 
it's not a policy question, but it is a political question. Uh, are Republicans likely starting to feel the heat uh, and the need to, quote, do something? And are they worried that this is going to actually be enough of an issue in 2024 that, uh, you know, Republicans are going to lose seats because the American public sees them as out of step and out of touch with where they are on public safety concerns? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a growing question uh, and a growing concern for the gun rights movement generally, right? Even though, as we've talked about in the past, the polling cycle is is fairly consistent when it comes to, um, you know, the aftermath of mass shootings, the support for gun control and various policies tends to go up, although we've seen um, support for AR-15 bans or so-called assault weapons bans has, has actually not followed that trend recently, uh, which is fascinating and you know, something for a whole podcast topic, perhaps down the line. But uh, and then a few months later, it tends to revert back to where it was. But I think what you've seen in a lot of polling is that that new normal when it when support comes back down is still higher than the old level of support, which is a problem if you're a gun rights advocate, because uh, at some point there, you know, there may be more of a tipping point. I mean, we saw Congress pass the first new gun restrictions in decades last year. Uh, and, you know, it's not clear that that's the end of it. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, I think a lot of the Republican messaging, frankly, has been terrible. Um, you know, uh, Tim Burchette, uh, uh from Tennessee, he was the congressman who said, uh, ah, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, and then he has backed off of that statement. And now he's, I think, supporting um, some version of a, a red flag law. Um, you know, when you talk about this and, and I think we're playing into this game where the gun control advocates want it to be, uh, you care more about your rights than you do about children being murdered. Right. And so when we make this a rights-based argument, when we say, well, it's all about due process protections, it's all about not infringing on my right to keep and bear arms. Gun owners are a minority in this country. We may be right but that's not an argument that is going to persuade a lot of non-gun owners who are, you know, consuming anti-gun media uh, and are convinced that the only way uh, to address these problems is to uh, ban so-called assault weapons or even repeal the Second Amendment altogether, I guess. Um, I think we have to offer alternatives. I think we have to to point out why we object to these things. And it's not because we don't care about kids. It's not because... I mean, listen, Stephen, you, you know this. My son, uh, my oldest son passed away last year um, and he died of alcoholism. I'll, I'll say it here. He died a week before his 31st birthday. And my wife and I found him dead in his bed. So I've looked at a dead child who I love very much. But I, I don't support the prohibition of alcohol. I'm not calling for prohibition, too, because I know that would be ineffective. That wouldn't save lives. We have 100,000 Americans dying from alcohol abuse every year. Um, and, you know, trying to ban booze isn't the answer. Uh, similarly, banning guns isn't the answer when we're trying to stop, you know, the 40,000 Americans every year who are dying from suicide or homicide. That's the wrong approach. And so if we do care about our kids... And we're not just interested in using them as political talking points. Then I think it's actually gun control advocates who have to be open minded enough to look beyond gun control as a solution or as if not a solution, 
um, certainly as something that can reduce these numbers and bring them down. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, <clears throat> honestly, because if you look, uh, if you read the research on especially in particular mass shootings and mass shooters, what you'll find, um, and we, I've talked to, uh, you know, researchers behind the violence project. We had them on a podcast just recently. Uh, but there's a very close correlation between suicidal ideation and, and mass shooter ideation, or like somebody who's considering <clears throat> mass shootings is very similar mental uh, crisis, a, a downward spiral. And, I think a lot of the solutions for mass shootings are in the end going to be pretty similar to the solutions for suicide, right? That that's, that's um, to me, it seems uh, fairly straightforward. And so while mental health becomes sort of a generic talking point in the aftermath of mass shootings, it really is the key getting proper mental health treatment on a broad basis too uh, is, is, the most probably effective thing you can do to counter mass shootings, especially because mass shootings are so random and um, difficult to predict. You can come up, you can see different factors that a lot of mass shooters have in common, but you can't build a profile off that because there are a lot of people who have those same factors. A lot of people who are right. guns, who've, who've uh, been, you know, in a mental health crisis before, who've, who've gone through childhood trauma, who do not turn out to be, somebody that is going to take out the, those issues on other people. And, and, and so that's where, you know, a more broad-based approach of uh, just greater um, mental health treatment, perhaps with a specialized um, program for identifying and off-ramping people who uh, could potentially become mass shooters is the right way forward. And I guess the individual policies of how you do that are where it gets much more complicated, obviously. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a fair statement. But, um, uh, you know, I, I also wanted to talk a little bit uh, about some, some uh, other Republican politics. Right? This is a little bit in the politics realm, but Donald Trump was just on CNN at a town hall. Um, and in it, he was asked by a voter about the bump stock ban that he imposed during his presidency, Right. And um, his response, and I'll, I'll just read the quote real quick here. Uh, he said, quote, as you know, the bump stocks are actually a very unimportant thing. NRA, I went with them and they said it doesn't mean anything or actually all they do is teach you how to shoot very inaccurately. So we did that. Um, and I, I just want to talk about this a little bit because I think it's pretty relevant to the primary here because uh, when I look at Donald Trump's record, there seems to be a fairly good opening to his right on this issue uh, as far as what he's actually accomplished while president. Not this obviously doesn't mean that there were no pro-gun things that he did. There were. But, you know, he, he is the person behind the bump stock ban, um, which has now twice been ruled unconstitutional by federal appeals courts. Um and, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how you think him doubling down on support for this and sort of citing the NRA as, uh, you know, his general blanket protection for him doing this uh, will actually play in this this upcoming election. 
Well, I mean, uh, among gun owners in particular, um, I, I don't know how well it's going to play. Um, you know, blaming the NRA, and, and, and as you pointed out at uh, the reload, the NRA was initially supportive mm -hmm. of uh, reclassifying bump stocks. And then when the final rule was published, they ended up opposing it. Um, so, you know, to to claim, well, I mean, listen, the, the NRA was the voice of authority. I think it probably was the case when it came to President Trump. Um, you know, we have heard that uh, Trump was also initially in favor of a ban on so-called assault weapons, but was talked out of it uh, by the NRA. That right. we've all seen uh, his comment uh, publicly about, you know, uh, take the guns now and due process later. Right. Apparently that was another, uh, uh, you know, position that he walked back after, you know, talking to uh, to folks at the NRA. So it 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 may very well be that uh, Donald Trump isn't just, you know, throwing the NRA under the bus, but he's accurately describing how he came to that position. Oh, yeah. The, the problem is that, um, again, I think for some gun owners, uh, the NRA's image has certainly been tarnished over the past couple of years. And so I don't know that that's really going to matter as an excuse. Um, the other issue that I think that that Trump has is that that bump stock ban opened the door for what we've seen with the Biden administration. Um and so if he's not willing to acknowledge, I mean, look, even if you were to say, look, I, I got bad advice from the NRA, that that would be one thing. Right. But to say, well, this is unimportant. Well, it's not unimportant. Right. Uh, you might think bump stocks are unimportant. You might think stabilizing braces are unimportant or, you know, building your own gun doesn't really matter. But all of these things are building towards bigger and broader bans enacted not by Congress, but through an administrative rule that comes complete with, you know, a federal prison sentence for those who might violate it. So, you know, the issue is important, even if you don't think bump stocks are. Um, and I think that Trump failed to appreciate that or acknowledge that uh, during the town hall last night. So you're right. I think there is an opening to the right of Donald Trump, whether that's enough to actually stop uh, you know, Donald Trump's popularity right now, I think remains to be seen because I, I think there are a lot of, uh, Trump supporters who are willing to overlook particular disagreements they might have with them uh, in favor of, you know, the candidate overall. Yeah, that's sort of been part of his magic as a politician since he got in. Right. Um, it's certainly not the first time that he's taken a position that was unorthodox uh, among Republican base. Uh, and oftentimes he's been able to uh, push the Republican base towards what his positions were. Uh, and sometimes he changes them. It, it depends. But uh, but real quick, let's go over exactly what happened with the bump stock ban. For, for anybody who's forgotten how this how this went down, because um, you and I were reporting on this at the, at the time, right? And <clears throat> obviously the Las Vegas shooting happens. is the worst mass shooting in American history. Still is. Uh, that shooter used guns that had bump stocks equipped to them. Uh, and that's why this became especially controversial thing. There was a push in Congress to pass legislation to ban them. The NRA opposed that because the definition that they had come up with in uh, this was a Democratic bill uh, was very broad and could have been really almost any trigger that made you shoot uh, capable of shooting a gun slightly faster. So, uh, you know, per perhaps just a lighter trigger would have been unlegal in under this this proposal. So the NRA uh, was opposed to that. <clears throat> and then they came out with a statement that said, we, you know, 
the Obama, ironically, they said the Obama administration wrongly classified bump stocks as stocks instead of machine guns. Um, because <clears throat> what a bump stock does is that it allows you to uh, fire a gun at a fast pace. Uh, we've shot one together, actually. It was, uh, the, the time that I've shot a bump stock was uh, at your place, uh, your old place, right? Or a friend's property, but. A friend's property, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, the, the, so that's what set in motion the Trump administrations, or at least gave them cover to pursue the rulemaking process as a way of banning bump stocks, uh, as a way of sort of reclassifying them uh, ex post facto as machine guns. Um, now, this was done, to, to be fair, to the NRA, because they thought that was the more politically viable route. They didn't want this legislation to happen. They thought there was going to be some sort of response, and they thought this was the less disruptive response. That That is, I think, the line that if you were talking to um, somebody off the record about it, uh, that's that's how they would explain it, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I and I, I the question is um, again whether or not that's right, uh, whether yeah. or not there was enough pressure that that Democrat bill would have passed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's silly to ignore the politics of this. Uh, you know, we can we can talk about shall not be infringed. We can talk about the what the, what the text of the Second Amendment says all day long. Uh, but again, every day politicians abuse our constitutional rights, not just our second amendment rights. So, you know, they're so, playing politics, right? They're, they're looking at, okay, how is this, this going to impact our majorities? Yeah. Right. Um, and, and so I think that there was that feeling at the time that yes, there had to be some type of response. Um, I do think and, that it didn't, it didn't actually work out that way in practice, right? Because the, the rulemaking process takes a year. Yeah. And so I, maybe it was enough of a pressure relief valve that it, it, it kept Congress from doing something on this, but it, it took them a whole year to get this bill in practice. Then when it, the rule, when the rule came out, the NRA didn't like it because it, it didn't allow for people who already had them to keep them, right? It was a confiscation order. You, you couldn't keep them. It was a federal felony if you did keep them, which I'm, sh- I believe a lot of people did keep them, but um, uh, you know, so it kind of makes a mockery of the whole justice system anyway but regardless like it's not like he got a lot of credit for doing this when he when it actually went into effect i remember uh ali belshi on msnbc at the, the day this went into effect it was like a five second thing he mentioned it and that was it there was no right there's no like political who i don't know i don't know that they really got any political captain the best that you could say is that they maybe released some pressure uh with that legislation but even that i think is uh questionable I do, too. And I mean, again, I think that you can make the very same case about uh, Bill Lee's temporary mental health restraining order. I think that's, you know, the if you want to be nice, um, he sincerely believes that this is a way to address mass shootings without violating anybody's Second Amendment rights. If you want to be politically cynical, um, this, again, is a pressure valve. Right. This allows Republicans, if they get on board to say, look, we did something uh, without you know, uh, banning guns or things of that nature. And, and in the hopes that that will be enough a- again for gun control activists, it's never going to be enough. It, it's just, it just becomes another talking point that Republicans didn't do the right thing, right? That they cowed to the gun lobby and didn't pass strong red flag legislation. It just becomes another argument. Mm. So I I'm with you. Um, I, I don't know that there's, 
I, I don't know how much pressure actually gets released, maybe in the short term. Um, but in the long term, I think moves like this play to the gun control lobby, not to Second Amendment supporters. It, it ends up putting us on the defense. It gives them an opening uh, that they are more than happy to exploit. And they're really good about playing the long game. Yeah. And and so uh, just back to Trump's, I guess, record here or the, the politics of guns in the Republican primary. Uh, you know, obviously, Trump had other accomplishments, right? His only thing on guns wasn't the bump stock ban. He, right. he um, signed uh, the Congressional Review Act bill when he first got into office that removed President uh, Obama's attempt to restrict some Social Security uh, recipients from owning guns. Right, that was a, that was really one of the only legislative accomplishments he had on the. Now, obviously, he's dealing with. Uh, a Senate a divided where legislature, right? Yeah, I mean, dealing with the Senate and, and where you don't have 60 even, votes. Right. But Yeah, but he um, also, but, I mean, you know, listen, a lot of his administrative actions were supportive. I don't think Trump was an anti-gun president. Right, uh, I sure. don't think you can call him that, right? I mean, even and, during and, the early days of the pandemic when, uh, right. you know, the firearms industry was declared essential. Yes, um, that's another which, accomplishment. Right, and a big one. I mean, that mm-hmm. I think that, you know, went a long way towards keeping gun stores uh, open in some states during Certainly. that the initial uh, stages of, of COVID, and then obviously um, the biggest one he had is appointing three Supreme Court justices who yeah. were in the majority on, in Bruin, which is yep. which is by far his most significant uh, accomplishment on on guns. Now it's obviously just a general accomplishment on uh, appointing justices that Republicans like. Um, now you know, of course, part of the question with that is that's his biggest accomplishment, but it's also something that. How much doubt is there that DeSantis or Abbott or Scott or any of these other people, Haley, who are challenging him, who may challenge him, uh, would they have, have appointed different justices given the opportunity? Uh, probably not. But but but, you know, th- that's the that's the political debate you get into with this stuff. I guess um, the real question is you look at somebody like DeSantis, right? He's the guy running second. Um a fairly distant second at this point, but he's running second and he's seemed to use this legislative session to really bolster his, his bona fides on a lot of issues, but guns in particular, right? He passed permitless carry. He passed this new banking regulation that require that, that prevents, um, it prevents any, uh, a bank from dropping somebody because they own guns or they run a gun business uh, among other things. And so he's kind of building this resume that would put him perhaps positioned to take advantage of this uh, vulnerability that Trump has on things like the bump stock ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that is a viable strategy? I mean, listen, I, you know, I don't think you can go wrong uh, in a Republican primary by, you know, supporting the Second Amendment. So I, I think this will be beneficial. You know, the... And, and listen, you know, I expect if uh, DeSantis starts rising in the poll, you know, a, a Trump line of attack might be, well, Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, uh, signed constitutional carry, but uh, it doesn't include open carry. Right. Or mm-hmm. uh, Ron DeSantis, as he supports uh, concealed carry, but he bans guns from his campaign events. Um, you know, if you're right. looking for the Second Amendment purist uh, in this field of two that we're just talking about right <laughs> now, um, you know, I think you can find people who are, I think that the two candidates are probably 90% there. 
Um, but both of them have done things that are going to tick off some gun control or some gun owners and some uh, a segment of supporters. You know, GOA right. uh, was lobbying to get open carry included in, in the permitless carry bill all session long. Um, they haven't but, you repealed know, they, some of the bills that were passed in 2018, like the the red flag law that Florida has and the, mm-hmm. the 18 to 20 year old ban on. Well, they ban them from buying any guns right in Florida. Um, those things that one is likely it was just upheld by a panel in the Seventh Circuit, but it's about to go on bonk where you probably expect it to get blocked or struck down. But but, um, you know, yeah, there's uh, as as you're saying there, I think there's certainly lines of attack uh, on DeSantis from the right on guns. Do you think there's maybe a more uh, maybe Abbott in Texas has certainly passed a lot of uh, pro gun legislation in his time there? Do you think he or Kemp in Georgia? I don't know. Is there a better candidate? Listen, I I think there are any number of, um, you know, good candidates, whether or not they've got the mojo to actually, you know, have an impact in the race is something else entirely. As Mm. as the polling indicated, right, it really is sort of a two person race right now. And Trump is a pretty commanding lead over DeSantis. Um, I'll tell you the person that I was actually most impressed by. I wasn't in Indianapolis for the interannual meetings this year, as as you know, uh, and I miss seeing you there. But um, I did watch the uh, the the forum and Chris Sununu actually was the guy who impressed me the most uh, out of everybody who spoke. I knew, you know, I, I knew Chris Sununu was a, was a pro to a guy. Yeah. But he, you know, his message where he's talking about you've got to stand up for your principles, even when people are saying, you know, do something. I mean, it was it was almost a rebuke of Bill Lee before Bill Lee. Uh, you know, made this call for a, a special session. Um, and I was, I, you know, that's somebody who, again, I don't think that Chris Nunes is going to be the, the next president. I don't think he's going to be the Republican nominee. Um, I could be wrong, but uh, I don't see it happening. But well, he's from a very small state, even with everything else. Considered <laughs> he is. But he, but yeah, he has message, certainly injected a lot of energy and he does have a pretty different message from mo- most everyone else in the field in that he's, yeah, it seems to be and pointing I, more towards I, convincing uh, maybe moderates or swing voters to come over. Seems to be his, his main sticking point, I feel like. Yeah, you got to grow. I mean, I, I, again, I think this is something that is a concern for conservatives generally, but certainly with the Second Amendment, um, you can't just talk. To yourself, you can't just talk to other segment of supporters, right? You, you've got to be able to reach outside the tribe because, again, we're not a majority of the country. So if we're only talking to ourselves and the gun control advocates get to talk to everybody else, I mean, why would we do that to ourselves? Why would we put ourselves in that position? So, um, I, you know, again, I think there are I don't think so far I've not seen what I would consider to be a, an anti-gun uh, candidate who's, you know, announced that they're running for president on the Republican side, which is good. Um, mm-hmm. There might be some slight variations, but uh, I think really it's going to come down to, you know, who presents the best argument, who has the best message, who can best represent us as gun owners, because I think they'll all do a pretty decent job of, of defending our right to keep and bear arms. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's probably a pretty good summary of where the field's at on this issue right now. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, Trump is clearly ahead, but it's also, and, and DeSantis is clearly the, uh, the, the closest competitor 
but it's also super early. I was going to say, it, it's early, man. Like, if this were a football game, the pregame show wouldn't even be on yet. Yeah. So, right. there, there's, yeah. We're, exactly. There's, and as People get crazy as our this. politics is, you know, there, there's going to be lots of twists and turns yes. between now and the first primary. If you look at basically every other primary that's ever happened, usually the person leading uh, at the beginning, like Beto O'Rourke was leading the Democratic primary. It's only... <laughs> 20 at one point um, early, early on. And then he finished by dropping out with 0% support. So, <laughs> right. you know, it, it's not necessarily like uh, these things are going to go exactly how you expect them to go this far out. But, but I do, I do think Trump has some vulnerabilities in this area and him doubling down on support for the bump stock ban is not necessarily something that is going to, uh, you know, change the entire dynamic of the race, but it does, it does show an area where, his rivals could come at him from, I think. So. Absolutely. And I think they would be, they would be, they would be dumb to ignore that opportunity because yeah. Trump certainly is not going to ignore any opportunity to go after uh, DeSantis on these that's, issues. So that's yeah. for sure. Trump is never going to give up any opportunity to go after anyone. He, he feels <laughs> like he has to. So, uh, but where you're going to be following this, I'm sure just like we are. So where can people find more of your, your writing? Um, best place, barryandarms.com, where I am an editor. You can also check out Barry and Arms Cam and Company, where uh, we occasionally talk to Stephen uh, and a lot of other folks. In fact, on uh, Monday's Cam and Company, we're going to be talking about a decision out of uh, Virginia where a federal judge uh, ruled that the federal ban on handgun sales to under 21s is unconstitutional. We've got the uh, uh, main attorney in that case. He's going to be joining us on uh, Cam and Company on Monday. So you can find that YouTube, Rumble, all the major podcast platforms as well. All right. Wonderful. Well, we'll have to have you on again uh, in the future to, to catch back up on all these details once we've got some more developments down the line. Thanks. And I will be uh, emailing your uh, corporate minders to uh, see if you can get permission to come on my show again, because it's been too long for that, too. Yes. So we got to have you back on Gamma Company. Absolutely. I'm sure CNM will let me we'll have a problem. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, uh, but they get they get first rights because they pay for it. So I can't exactly. complain. <laughs> I can right. pay in farm fresh eggs if you want. Oh, That's about all I can afford. Well, but, the, uh, you know, up until very recently, I think that was that might have been the exchange rate between eggs and dollars is pretty high. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, we will talk to you again real soon. Thanks, Cam. Excellent. Thanks, Stephen. All right. I'm back with contributing writer Jake Fogelman to, to give a little bit of a news update. Uh, before we get to that, though, we, uh, we I think we can continue my <clears throat> ongoing saga with uh, my new carry gun, my new holster situation. Um, it's uh you know i don't it's not disaster but so i cut the little piece out of the alien gear kydex to make the the shield around the optic fit in there right and um that works it fits properly now but the issue that i have is that it rides that optic shield catches on my belt when i go to put the holster in uh, into my pants. So, uh, that's not ideal. Right. Cause it makes it kind of, it kind of pushes it out a little bit from full, uh, from being fully seated, which, uh, I figured out a way to, you know, so I, I figured out a way to wrangle it in there. So it's, uh, so that the belt goes over top of the, um, the, the shield and the optic instead of the, the optic getting caught on the, the belt and getting slightly pushed out of full seat. So 
I have a workaround, but it's not ideal. Right? <laughs> it's just another obstacle. <laughs> yeah, it's just another thing. Um, and it print it, when that happens, it prints so much more too, because the gun sticks up a little bit higher. Sure. Uh, so that's not, and it's a little bit bigger of a gun than what I'm used to with the Springfield XDS. You know, this this X Macro, the six hour P365 X Macro, is just a bigger gun overall. Not a lot bigger, uh, especially considering how much more capacity it's like more than double capacity. Um, but with that optic on there, it's you know taller i guess and so it's a little bit hard to conceal especially if it gets pushed up slightly out of uh being fully seated in that holster so right. that little piece of past little piece of plastic um i think was actually fairly important so i really have to talk to them and see if they can send me a, the proper uh plastic piece that will actually go around the right. it's ridiculous to me right like the that's the that's how they sell that gun, right? Sig sells that gun with that optic on it, with the shield installed. So the Kydex should fit that, right? You would think so. That, yeah. It's not unreasonable. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it's a new gun. So look, you know, uh, these holster companies, they have to go out and get copies of every gun before to make these these molds. I get it. But, uh, you know, I, I'll call them up. Hopefully they've got a solution because uh Cutting off the the shield bit works, but it's not great. Right, it's not ideal. So I don't know. Maybe I'll have to spend another couple hundred dollars on finding the right holster or whatever. <laughs> That's the uh, eternal fun. curse of, of gun guys. It's a drawer full of holsters that <laughs> once worked but don't work anymore. <laughs> yeah, the cheap ones aren't are of course never going, almost never going to really work for you because uh, that cheap appendix holster i just don't think that's gonna work at all um and that, that was another one where it's like okay it doesn't fit it, the optic cutout fits sort of they need to do a little trimming on that too uh that was with cya holsters and um the uh the, but it, the real problem was the the front sight because it has the raised front sight it's like the suppressor height front sight on on it from the factory and that was causing binding there's another one where it's like i could i can mess with this and it makes it make it fit but um it's not ideal and also i just didn't couldn't find like a good comfortable way to carry that appendix with that size of a gun too but uh, uh, you're still going strong with your setup though right yeah still still happy five years later i've i have a just a cheap kydex appendix holster that's worked out pretty well for me and it hasn't cracked yet but it's i don't have a i'm not carrying currently a red dot equipped pistol and it doesn't have night uh suppressor right sights or anything like that so if i ever do yeah. want to make that jump then i'm going to be in the same boat as you trying to find one that will work with all the different configurations uh, it's uh it's a whole world of pain out there with this stuff <laughs> uh, you know this is Carry this is why I've carried the same gun forever. You know, I think that people fall into carrying that same gun because once you get it set up, yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, you don't have to go through all this stuff in the future. But uh, I, you know, the capacity is is worth the hassle. Um, I'll just have to figure out a way to. Maybe I'll just have to buy some of these more expensive holsters. That's probably what the answer is. Usually, I tried to do cheap red dots at first too. And that didn't work either. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, buy once, cry once. Is I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, of course, some of the even the expensive holsters that like are made with better optic cutouts and stuff. Uh, their lead times are like some of them could be like six yep. months. So like, what am yep. I supposed to do before that anyway? But uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll try the tier one thing next. I, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe maybe Alien Gear will come through with a with a better Kydex replacement for me. But now I have to call them and and go through that whole process too, which is not fun right. either. I wish it just worked. That's what I was paying for, right? But not that they. <laughs> Their holsters aren't super expensive, but they're not cheap either. <laughs> right. Know? It's like an $80 holster. Uh, it wasn't a $20 holster. But eh, regardless, uh, at least it's still super comfortable to carry. That's that's uh, that's, that's huge. Good. And, I, yeah. and I got this red dot sighted in. So I'm pretty happy with the setup. It's just getting the kinks worked out now. And maybe, maybe with a new holster, maybe with modified version of this holster i don't know we'll see we'll see well good luck there's (laughs) there's plenty of people out there who don't like the alien gear holsters and i don't think i would buy the other ones that they make but the i I do like the 3.5 uh hybrid that has the metal plate because then you get the actual retention uh you get the trigger guard coverage you get all the stuff you're looking for in a holster but it's super comfortable is my thing i like about it but You know, uh, if it does, if it doesn't, if if I can't figure out the optics part of it, then yeah, I'll have to try something else. We'll see. Uh, but anyway, on to the news of the the week. What uh, what do you got for us? Yeah, so we got a few headlines. One, uh, this one comes from the Albany Times Union. It's kind of a an appendix to the one of the links we linked to last week about how their red flag applications are way up ever since Hochul's executive order. Well, now the state police union, who represents the New York State Police, who are required under Hochul's executive order to do these red flag laws, they're saying that they are completely overwhelmed trying to process them and to the point where it's actually distracting them from investigating other crimes. It's just sort of an unintended consequences sort of story. Yeah, Cam mentioned this uh, in the main interview. I think they said uh, they're up like a thousand percent increase in red flag orders. Um, You know, this all stems from the Buffalo uh, mass shooting where, uh, that guy had been, uh, that whole situation is still a bit, uh, unclear to me or odd to me because, you know, he had been taken for evaluation at a mental health facility by the police, um, you know, six months or so before his shooting. But for some reason that didn't qualify as an involuntary commitment, um, right. which would have disqualified him from owning guns altogether. But either way, the, issue there was that they didn't red flag they didn't use the red flag law on him uh after that point and so he was still able to legally purchase guns which then he uh, he bought an ar uh, a new york legal one and then modified it to be um to accept magazines so detachable magazines and so you know that's where that all stems from this sort of the uh response was for the governor to kind of mandate that anytime the police would consider doing a red flag law, they have to right a red flag order they have to do they have to file one so now we're seeing sort of the results of that and then next speaking of cam he's got a story over at bearing arms about uh, rhode island is actually advancing a assault weapon ban bill uh, so this is sort of a continuation of a topic we've been covering pretty heavily is just the resurgence of state level assault weapon bans, plus, you know, 
as the backdrop against sort of the legal battle against over their constitutionality. So it's just interesting to see another state potentially considering an assault weapon ban this year. Yeah, the momentum for that politically in blue states is continuing, even as they're losing uh, in court over them. I mean, there's been mixed results, you know, uh, to be fair. Sure. There have been uh, several rulings against the Sullivan's bans as violating the Second Amendment. They've been stayed. Um, so, you know, like the Illinois ban is in effect right now. In fact, I think the police are trying to claim that the guns sold when it wasn't in effect are now illegal as well, um, which is pretty uh, absurd. But, uh, yeah, they, um, the, the, this momentum, political momentum is still there. For, for these in blue, specifically in right. relatively deep blue states. Um, and, uh, you know, but they don't, I don't think they really have long to put these in place because they're almost certainly all going to get struck down. That's, that's my view of it, at least. And there's potentially going to be Supreme Court oversight of it, as we covered last in last week's episode. So, yeah, like you said, the yeah. clock's, clock's ticking. And I then just think last there's, w- there's just inevitably they're not going to, the, the the legal momentum is on the side of, of uh, these being unconstitutional. So I think that's but we'll right. see. We'll see. And then the last uh, headline we'll talk about, uh, as of la- as we said last week, we also have many other headlines that you guys can check out at the newsletter. But this one comes from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's sort of a story about the major gun rights group, the Second Amendment Foundation. We've talked about them before. Uh, the Washington State Attorney General is currently investigating them for uh, accusations of perhaps self-dealing with the group's funds. Um, and then Alan Gottlieb, the head of the Second Amendment Foundation, is countersuing the Washington Attorney General uh, over this whole debacle. But it's definitely a, a big story right now, I think, in the gun rights space. Yeah, so they're, the, I guess the accusations stem from the fact that um, Alan uh, and his his family own uh, like the direct mail company that the Second Amendment Foundation does work with. So, um, you know, there's potential conflict of interest there, sort of self-dealing accusations. I think there's a radio uh, stations that they own as well that they sold to the Second Amendment Foundation. Uh, there's pro- there's um, sort of self-dealing potential there, at least, right? Um, that's what <clears throat> I guess is being investigated. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and and so uh, you know the the Second Amendment Foundation claims that they they offer these services they buy these services from Gottlieb uh, at a uh, market value right or below market value um, that's which is not um, an unheard of um, arrangement right that's how it can still be legal and ethical if. They are, in fact, getting these services at market rates or below market rates. You know, if they're they're selling services to their um, their organization at a level that that isn't um, outside of what they would be able to do with a company that wasn't owned by the uh, the officials at the Second Amendment Foundation. Then. And, and the Second Amendment Foundation has a board. Yes. Yeah, so there's some of this stuff. Um, is it reminds me a lot of uh there, there's a um 
there's a nonprofit that runs the volunteer effort to lay wreaths at Arlington National Cemetery, right? Uh, which I've done, I've volunteered with them before. And there, there was a similar story a couple of years back about how the people who ran that nonprofit also owned the company that provided the wreaths to the nonprofit. So the nonprofit would buy the wreaths from this company that was owned by the people that ran the nonprofit. And so, um, you know, this similar concerns were raised there. Uh, and it was a similar defense in that situation as well, where they had claimed that the services they were providing were at market rates or below market rates, and therefore it's not an issue. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it'll be interesting to see what details come out about this. It's a significant amount of money. It's uh, tens of millions over, I mean, over a period of time, this is over like right. a decade. Um, this is not, not the same level of money that's involved in say the NRA situation, but, uh, but still, you know, obvious, obviously, uh, you know, it's important to get answers on these things. And, uh, the other side of it is that, as you noted, they filed a, a civil rights claim against the Washington attorney general claiming that he's, uh, undertaking this investigation as a means of a political attack that is politically motivated, uh, which, you know, could well be because it's a attorney general who is, uh, obviously a very staunch gun control advocate. And this is a gun rights group, similar situation to what you've seen in New York with the attorney general there, Letitia James and the NRA, where the NRA has claimed that her motivations are political. Uh, of course, uh, you can have both, be true at the same time um, where the uh, the person pushing for prosecution is politically motivated and there are also legitimate uh, legal and ethical issues going on. So this is a, uh, the first story on this that I've seen. So we'll, we'll have to follow up and, and hopefully we can have perhaps somebody from Second Amendment Foundation on the show to talk, talk about this stuff and answer, uh, you know, the hard questions uh, on this, this topic. So we'll see, we'll try to get that arranged. Yep. And then on to our news of the week, uh, you had a couple stories, um, about some major court rulings that were handed down. Um, first of which was a federal ruling out of Virginia about young adults and handgun sales. If you want to tell us what happened there. Yeah. So, uh, this is a pretty significant ruling, right? Because the, the federal judge in this case is, and he's looking at the federal law. This doesn't, isn't just, um, Isolated to Virginia, as I've seen some people, uh, you know, seem to believe uh, in, in other reports that I've seen on this. This is actually about the federal laws. This applies everywhere. And it's about the ban on sales of handguns to 18 to 20 year olds. And this judge found that that's not constitutional. It's not consistent with the Second Amendment. He did a uh, review of the historical traditions surrounding sales of guns to uh, those under 21 and, and, and he found that there's, uh, no historical support for this type of sales restriction, right. Um, or purchasing restriction really. And, uh, therefore it, it can't stand under the Bruin test that the Supreme court handed down last year. So that's a pretty significant thing. This is, you know, this law is, this is from the Brady bill. So it's from the 1960s. 
um, it's or sorry from the Gun Control Act, and it's it's um, you know it, so it's not very old, right? Uh, and uh, the, there just weren't these sorts of regulations on entire age groups of adults um, at, during the founding era. That's the basic conclusion that this judge came to, and so uh, he. I guess the rule is still the the law is still in effect at this point because the judge has asked the plaintiffs and the defense for, you know, um, orders on what what he should do now that he's determined that the law is uh, unconstitutional. But um, that those are due next week, I believe. So we'll we'll see maybe the next week or two. It's very likely that that law will be enjoined, although it's also extremely likely this will be appealed. So, yeah. and a stay will probably be issued, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I I think it's probably like you said, like the, the defense will appeal this ruling. But what I do think is interesting is this has been one area of the law that I think has been the most consistent post-Bruin, where we've seen, you know, yeah. you talked about the assault weapon bans and the magazine bans, how different judges have kind of come down on different sides of that issue. But in terms of gun rights for 18 to 20 year olds, I don't think I can think of a single ruling that we've seen post-Bruin where a judge has said that those laws have been permissible we've there's seen many one. oh has there been there one? was the there was the florida uh oh that's right ban. that's right yep uh, and this circuit. actually extends back from before bruin you had a number of uh rulings on the 18 to 20 year old restrictions there was one in california uh there was another one in the in this circuit there's the fourth circuit that we're talking yep. about here um back a couple of years ago that also found that you can't restrict actually it was on the same law the problem so they, they this is actually a repeat ruling i guess i should explain uh because there was a panel in the fourth circuit that found this restriction was unconstitutional the problem was that that became moot after the plaintiff in the case turned 21. Yeah. this was no longer a, an active case which is a one of the hard parts i guess of challenging these age-based restrictions because they can the cases can take several years and an 18 year old can turn 21 before the case ends and they're no longer affected by this, this ruling. So it's, um, you know, that is another issue that these, these sort of uh, plaintiffs face in these cases. But yeah, there was the, the one sort of outlier that we've seen, because you also had uh, Texas lost their case on uh, yep. concealed carry for 18 to 20 year olds. Um, Tennessee as well. Minnesota yeah, so as well. Yeah, it's been a it's been a lot of uh, there's been a there's been a lot on the side of 18 to 20 year olds uh, gun rights at this point. But there was the Florida ruling, which is a panel of the 12th Circuit that uh, happened this year that found the Florida's and Florida has basically a total ban on sales of all guns to 18 to 20 year olds. Now, that doesn't seem likely to stand given all the other uh the trend on this recently but uh but yeah there there has been that one significant outlier but it's definitely an interesting body of law to see because there's been a ton of division post bruin where judges have gone any which way mm-hmm. and we only have the one case here which as you said may not fully stand and i think the legislature has even talked about repealing that law in the first place so that could also yeah, be although they didn't they didn't repeal it um i think there's a lot of the hope is left on the this is probably going on bonk in yeah. the 12th panel, this was a this was a panel of three judges in the 12th Circuit that ruled in favor of this law. And now it's going to be heard by the full circuit, which is relatively conservative circuit. So um, 
<clears throat> we'll see how they come out, but I would be very surprised if that law survived scrutiny there, especially because yeah. it's a much broader ban. It's a ban on basically right. total sales, a total yeah. ban on uh, buying guns for by 18 to 20 year olds. But, but yeah, so that's a super significant ruling. Um, and then, we, yeah, we had another one, right? I was going to say, yeah, you wrote about uh, this this time a gun law actually being upheld, and it's another mm -hmm. federal provision under the Gun Control Act uh, about uh, people that are involuntarily committed being prohibited from owning guns, and the court found that was that's okay, that's permissible. Yeah, tell us so what went into that similar situation where the judge looked at the historical tradition of right firearms regulations uh, during the founding era because that's what Bruin requires, right and except this time he found that there was a significant tradition of barring specifically people who are dangerously mentally ill, not just all mentally ill, not just anyone who has any sort of mental illness diagnosis, because that's not what the law applies to, right? Sure. The law applies to uh, people who are uh, adjudicated as a threat to themselves or others. Right? That That's the standard in the federal law. So they have to actually have been found to be a threat to themselves or others and committed on that basis. So, uh, you know, it's not just anyone who's been diagnosed as bipolar or has depression or, or what have you. So on that basis, he found that uh, there is a historical tradition that dates back to the founding era and before and after, which um, allows... Uh, the government to disarm dangerous uh, mentally ill people. Now, uh, he did admit that there was not a exact replica of the modern version of this law in the founding era. Uh, so maybe, I don't know, perhaps on appeal, there'll be some more controversy over this. We'll see. But he said that the, you know, the way that, um, the way that, government officials operated in the founding era is consistent with the fact that they were allowed to uh, take firearms from somebody who was uh, considered uh, dangerously mentally ill. And I think that's this is interesting, one, because we've seen sort of a split again in terms of the prohibitory offenses that are listed under the Gun Control Act about what can stand and what can't. For example, mm -hmm. felon and possession laws have been pretty consistently upheld. Yep. But you've seen some of the more controversial rulings like the DV. Uh, restraining order ruling and the uh, in felony indictment ruling. So this is one where uh, obviously the court erred on the side of the federal government and said that's permissible. But I think it also might have implications based on the criteria he laid out potentially for red flag laws. We haven't seen too many federal red flag law challenges. But if there's a history, as this judge is saying, of taking guns from people that are dangerously mentally ill, I think that's an interesting criteria to, to look forward as yeah. inevitably the red flag laws will get challenged. It could be. There was one ruling against red flag laws in New York. In New York, yeah. Right. Um, so but I believe that centered more on due process rather than the actual yeah. act of taking the firearms from... Which I think is probably the more uh, fertile ground for legal right. challenges anyway. But, right. But, um, uh, yeah, it could be. There's it's, None of these things are necessarily fully settled, and the Supreme Court is probably going to have to step in right. sooner rather than later on some of these things, especially because they're dealing with federal laws. Um, now we're seeing uh, several of these federal laws get struck, at least provisions of them. And um, that's where the Supreme Court is more, uh, generally more apt to intervene and explain itself in those cases in a much quicker 
manner than than otherwise. So we will certainly keep on top of that, of course, and uh, and follow all of the the latest developments with Guns in America. But right now, we actually have a member segment that it, we're going to head on over to. So let's go. All right, well, it's time for one of my favorite segments, the member segment, where we get to know some of you Reload members out there. This week we have Frank Phillips, who's actually a new member to the Reload, on with us. How are you doing, Frank? Great, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing all right. Welcome to the show. Uh, we appreciate you coming on and and talking with us a little bit, just to help us get to know you a little bit better. Um, why don't we just start off with a little bit of just basic information about yourself, where where you live, sure, what, what state? Uh, I'm in Alabama, uh, Central Alabama. Okay. Yeah, and uh, was born here. Uh, I have lived here for the past uh, 33 years. Right out of right out of since college. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Nice. And uh, you know what? What kind of job do you do? What what field are you in? Uh, I work for a very large company that, uh, you know, uh, air is supposed to be free and water is supposed to be free and rocks are supposed to be free. But the company I work for makes rocks. We take big <laughs> rocks and we crush them into little rocks and we sell billions of dollars worth of them. Wow! Wow! Yeah. I, well, sorry, are you near uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, by any? Any chance? No, 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 no. no we're, we're we're based in Birmingham. <laughs> Maybe you should consider moving to to Little Rock just for the oh, just the, for the yeah. synergy of the name. <laughs> that's <know>. right. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's that's great, and you've been there a long time too. Right? Yeah, yeah, for wow. over three decades. Yeah, it's a, it's a life, lifelong career for me. That's incredible. That's that's rare these days, right? You know, yeah. people used to do that. That's how it used to it used to be. Stay at the same company for a long time, but but uh, now you don't see it as much, and so it must be uh, you must like working there, I guess, right? Oh yeah, it's, it's provided a lot of stability, and it's got a great culture, and um, it, it's it's really been a, a pretty big blessing. I, I get to uh, leave work every day and come home to my wife and kids, and I've been able to raise my children comfortably and and securely. And with That's stability. Wonderful. Yeah. That's fantastic. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your relationship with firearms. Do you own guns? Or did you grow up around guns? What, how's uh, How'd that turn out for you? Yeah, all of the above. Um, I've been shooting ever since I was a kid. Uh, my father had guns and we took, took me out shooting and did some hunting, you know, not a whole lot. Uh, but then uh, in college and after college, uh, I started collecting. And, uh, I, I tell you, I think everybody has this, this feeling at one time or another, and it's the regret of having sold a gun later (laughs) on that you just are just slapping yourself. Why did I sell that? That's so true. I I feel that way about, uh, one of my 1911s that I sold. Uh, sometimes I'm like, why, why, why did I sell that? I don't know. Oh yeah. I had a, I had a hard Chrome, uh, P seven, uh, you know, the squeeze cocker. Uh, mm-hmm. that I sold that I just never should have sold that. And a, <laughs> an original, uh, nickel SIG 228 that was part of an FBI contract in the early nineties. And just very few of those, they're, they're extremely rare. And of course mm-hmm. I sold that one should never have sold that one. So what, uh, what do you usually focus on with your collecting? What kind of guns? Well, I'm a big fan of the Glock 19. So I have, uh, several of those. And, uh, of course, these days, the past couple of years, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've gotten into uh, suppressors and SBRs. 
Okay. Uh, so, so for example, uh, this this little gem, uh, this is a Ruger Charger. It started life as a pistol and uh, did a Form 1 on it. And this is about as much fun as you can have at the range. Wow. Uh, yeah. It's, and this is a, uh, a Silencer Co. switchback. Uh, so, yeah, this is, uh, this, is, this is fun for the whole family. Yeah, yeah. It's a press 22, the short barrel. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Is it a 22? That's it's a 22. 22. Yeah, and yeah. it takes you know it takes ten twenty two magazines. It's a Ruger. Ah, yeah, that does sound like fun. It is fun. That, yeah, and it you know I always, I always enjoy my ten twenty two. It's one of my favorite guns to shoot. No doubt. And I did uh, a few upgrades to it. I put in the um, the Ruger BX trigger, uh, mm-hmm. which was about ninety dollars. Yep, yeah, and it it really improves it. Mm-hmm. And I put a few uh, Volcorts and parts in it. I think an extractor mm-hmm. and and firing pin. That's some fancy stuff right there. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's I suppressed twenty two as well as is just a a real joy to shoot. You know, there's just not much sound coming out of that. And uh, you know, my nice light recoil. You can get real accurate with those as well. A oh, lot yeah. of fun. You know, cheap yeah. ammunition. It's got all the all the great <laughs> plinking benefits that you could think of, right? Oh yeah. And of course when you put a suppressor on it increases reliability. Uh, so you could put just about any load you want. Shooting subsonic rounds through these things is, is just, it's great. You don't even need hearing protection. Yeah, that's when they actually start to sound like the movies. Right? Yeah. It's yeah, like really the, one of the only suppressed guns that actually sounds like they do in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, as you know, the, a suppressed gun in real life, uh, the silencer, that may be the name that uh, Hiram Maxim came came up with for them uh, but they aren't they don't actually make the gun silent right as anyone yeah. has ever shot them knows Dude, just like a muffler doesn't make a car silent yeah exact same technology made yeah. by the same person yeah right. exactly mm-hmm. but yeah. uh but they certainly do make shooting more enjoyable i would say that oh yeah no doubt about it no doubt and i think um i've got uh some axle hearing protection that um it'll it lets in anything uh, under 80 decibels. So when you're talking and you're on the range, you know, you can have a normal conversation with people, mm-hmm. but then anything over 80 decibels, it's going to cancel out. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Those are that, you know, those are always nice. Uh, especially I, I get, I think I have the walkers that have the microphones in them. Uh, Same thing. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting, it's always an interesting experience too, because it, it can also give you like a weird, uh, it's the spatial audio is, is, is weird with, with those, uh, headphones. So you can get kind of disoriented a little bit, but, but they are super useful, especially for uh, like younger shooters or beginner shooters who aren't used to, you know, having the full, uh, range of, of decibels blocked out by hearing protection and trying to communicate. Um, I mean, they're really good for anyone, right? Because you can communicate with people a lot easier with, with those sorts of, uh, hearing protection, but I think they're especially beneficial for people who aren't used to going out and shooting, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've always loved the little orange foam things, but once you put those in, if you want to, if you want to hear anything else, you've got to take it out and say, what did you say? And then yeah. you put them back in. Or you got to shout, <laughs> shout yeah. at each other. Yeah. It's, um, it's certainly having those uh, more modern options is, is ideal, right? 
yeah. you know, you can, you can actually go out to the range, you can protect your hearing and you can uh, protect your voice too, right? But, cause you don't have to shout all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's very nice. And then, yeah, having the suppressor there uh, as well, just adds another level <clears throat> of, uh, of convenience and safety to it uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's really advantageous. Yeah. Uh, plus the, you know, the suppressors and a lot of people don't realize that they also reduce recoil. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, and especially when you're in a public range, I mean, we've all been next to the guy who's, who's shooting his AR five, five, six pistol and this huge fireball and the percussion, you know, uh, or, or the guy on your left shooting a 44 Magnum. And, you know, the, the nice thing about suppressors is, is it's, it's, uh, it's a friendly thing to do to your neighbors at the range. Oh yeah, <clears throat> certainly. Um, and so what's your, what's your favorite suppressor? You have, a, you have a number of them, right? So what's, uh, what one do you like best? Yeah, I think, um, I have two Omega nine K's and, uh, that's actually this one. So this is on an MP5. So short boy. Yeah. And, uh, it's, you know, it's got a tri lug mount. So it just, that's, it just comes off like that. Twists on like that. Very simple to use. And yeah, then I've, quick I've got it. Nice. Yeah. So that was dedicated for the trilog because uh, I've got two MP5 clones. And then um, another one I have, uh, I, I, I put it, usually have a half by 28 just for using on everything else. Mm, mm. Yeah. I will yeah. say it's very versatile. Oh, and you know, it'll also do um, 300 blackout uh, subsonic. Oh, okay. So it'll, you know, I, I've used it on nine millimeters and on, uh, and on my 300 blackout. Oh, it's a nice variety. Yeah, it really um, is. It'll also do 38 and, special too. Well, yeah. and, uh, I think that the first one you showed that, um, for those switch. listening at home, that's uh that's a modular yeah. suppressor, right? Yeah. The switchback, you, you can, uh, there, there's four, four configurations you can put on it. Um, it, it all comes apart, but there's one that's called rifle optimized, where essentially you take this part and you reverse the baffles and then you put it back together. And, uh, so if your, if your barrel is at least 10 inches long, uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic sound reduction. Mm. Uh, but anyway, you could also, I could also take the, uh, take the end of this off this long part and put it, you know, and you can use it as a tiny little thing. Uh, I've seen people do it to those little Beretta Bobcats or, uh, you know, the Mm. 22 Bobcat. So it's a tiny little gun with a tiny little suppressor. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty versatile. That's fantastic. Uh, You have to get a suppressor. I mean, obviously the process is, uh, not, it's certainly not as easy as going in and just buying a gun. Um, but, uh, but it is doable. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there've been some, improvements in the ATF process, I guess, recently, but the electronic filing, but, uh, but it still takes several months, right? Usually for, for one of these to go through. Well, it's running around 300 days now. Oh, okay. That's so much yeah. better. Well, that's almost a year. It, it's, Oh wait. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. yeah 300, 300 days. days. Yes. That is almost a year. That's so yeah, yeah not better. Very bad. Yeah. And it's, um, and it varies. I mean, there, there are, uh, you know, you can read on some forums that there'll be a fluke that, you know, some guy headed in and, you know, four weeks later it was approved. But, 
Uh, no, it's 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 running a long time. I still have a, a few more that are that are pending. That's probably only going to get worse, right? As they if the if this pistol brace rule actually goes into effect, which we're still waiting on a couple court cases to see if anything's going to come in before the end of the month when it's supposed to go into effect. Uh, because that's supposedly their solution there is to have millions of people file new, uh, what, Form 4s, right? For, well, a form to 1, register, yeah. yeah. Form 1s to register these yeah. pistol-braced guns. I don't know how many people are actually going to do that, but if even yeah. a small percentage do, that's going to be a huge tax on the, the current system, which, as you just mentioned there, is already pretty slow. Yeah, and in fact, it, it may not be a Form 1. I think I think you're right. I think it is a Form 4 because... According to the government, if you have a braced pistol, mm-hmm. in their eyes, it is already a short-barreled rifle. Right. And so um, to register it, I think you would do a Form 4. Right. Otherwise, a Form 1 is for making one. You know? Yeah. So we'll have to see how that, that turns out. But I imagine it's hard to, it's hard to see how it wouldn't drastically increase wait times for current NFA items like suppressors. But We'll have to see. So uh, just give us a little bit more about, uh, you know, uh, how, you, how you found the reload here. What, what made you get interested in uh, in our publication and in, in becoming a member? Well, honestly, I don't remember exactly how I found it. it, it uh, I think it was a link that I must have been reading an article and, and uh, your site was referenced. And so I thought, well, I'm going to look at that. And I went in and I looked at it and I read some of your articles and I really enjoyed them. And then... Um, I got in my car and I'm like, you know, I'm going to download one of those podcasts. And I listened to it, you know, driving back and forth to work and, and loved it. And then, and, and so now I'm kind of working my way backwards on your podcast. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, I love them. Uh, the, you, you get these guys on and like the guy from uh, Pepperdine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jake Charles. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Copel, Copel. Uh, yeah. David Copel. David yeah. Copel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um very knowledgeable people. And I, you know, yeah. hearing, hearing y'all discuss these things, um, just is very enlightening because, you know, at the core, we all know that, uh, gun control for its stated purpose will never work because criminals by definitions don't obey laws. Uh, so if they're, if the purpose of gun control is to keep them out of the hands of criminals, that's never going to work. Uh, and, but getting into you know the the deeper uh, issues of, of the litigating litigating these and, and the state mm-hmm. courts and the federal courts uh, that's really interesting and I've I've really enjoyed listening to this and your your podcast and, and reading the articles. Great, wonderful, yeah. We you know we try to have that variety of viewpoints too, so that you're not just stuck in one echo chamber, right? And and we we try to get people who have uh, expertise in whatever given topic we're talking about that week. And, and, uh, and so I'm glad to hear that that's, that's uh, paying off well, that people are, 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 uh, you know, enjoying in that, that level of, you know, calm, informed discussion. Uh, Cause that is exactly what we're going for here. Uh, so that, that's fantastic. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, we're, What's your what's your plan from here? You you think you're gonna go deeper into the collecting realm, or are you gonna buy more? You know, more and more interested in suppressors, or uh, you know, how, how do you see yourself moving forward? Um, I need to shoot more, mm-hmm. uh, and 
you know, I get to the, yeah, you know, the, the thing is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, uh, you've heard of the CMP marksmanship program, civilian marksmanship program. Uh Well, just down the road in, in, uh, in Anniston, Alabama, uh, is where the CMP, one of the CMPs is, and it's a world-class range. And I get out there maybe every six weeks or so. Um, but I, I really, I think I want to, I want to go out and shoot more. So you don't want to be the kind of collector that just has their guns on the wall. You want to go out and actually shoot, shoot oh, these yeah, things, yeah. get you set. Especially, especially with suppressors, uh, you know, it's yeah. just, they're just fun. Yeah. 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 So, true. yeah, I, I, I think I'd like to, uh, to get out a lot more. Yeah. And oh, you, hey. You're, you're a certified uh, safety instructor, right? Yes. I'm uh, certified to teach the NRA's basic pistol course. Um, and and uh, I use that actually as part of training when I do classes for the National Journalism Center. Um, and and so, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, even I would like to get out and go shooting a lot more often than I get to, especially because I live, I live here in uh, Northern Virginia, right, in Alexandria area. And uh, so the only ranges that are really close by are all indoor ranges, uh, which is not ideal, or they're like private ranges that uh, private ranges, you always, you know, you have to know somebody to sponsor you to, and it's a long process and it's expensive. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I I go to my, I have a year membership at my local indoor range, but I would love to, I mean, I'd love to get out and shoot more outdoors, honestly, than I, than I'm able to. Yeah. That's what I love about the CMP range in Anderson. It's all outdoors. They have, uh, Skate ranges, trap ranges, uh, sporting clays, a uh, uh, 600-yard range, mm. uh, pistol wow. ranges, action pistol. It, it's, that it's sounds worth. awesome. Yeah. yeah. I highly recommend it. Anybody around, anybody, you know, in in, in between Atlanta and Birmingham should, should go and, and see that facility. It's world-class. That sounds fantastic. I'll, I'll have to take a trip down there sometime. Maybe we go shooting together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of, Let me know. Let me know when you're in the neighborhood. Absolutely. All right. Well, we really appreciate you uh, joining the show and giving us a little bit of insight into yourself and, and your collecting and, and how you came across the reload. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, but that's it for this episode of the uh, Weekly Reload Podcast. Make sure you guys like and rate and share this show. It helps us tremendously when you do that. And um, if you want to become a re- Reload member as well, you can head over to our website, thereload.com, and check out membership options where you Get exclusive access to members-only pieces that you won't be able to find anywhere else and the opportunity to come on the show for a member segment. It's my, my favorite segment. So please uh, consider doing that. That is how we support our reporting here. That is our only source of revenue at this point. And uh, so that's what keeps us going. But until next week, we will see you guys. No, the devil's got no-